I'm going to read uh, to us from John's Gospel, uh, John chapter 3. I'm not sure what page it's on. It says on the bulletins. I haven't got a copy um, up here. But John uh, chapter 3, I'm going to start at verse 1. Now there's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify of what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's only begotten Son. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I began the service this morning by quoting from Ecclesiastes, as I said, one of the oldest books in the Bible. It's a book uh, that I studied at college. Quite a difficult uh, book to get your head around, but one of the key questions in that book is, uh, what is life all about? What is the meaning of life? And the book really is a series of uh, collected wisdom as different people in the ancient world sought to work out, well, what is the meaning of life? What is the secret of life? What is it all about? Um, The author of the book is called, uh, in Hebrew, Koelet, which means the teacher or the assembler, the one who gathers the information together. I remember once uh, working hard for a seminar and uh, we were all getting ready for the seminar. We were sat in the room. We were, we were, all, we were all set. And the uh, Old Testament lecturer, he's there. And we're just getting started. When, when kind of 10 minutes into the seminar, uh, one of my uh, fellow students kind of bundled in, obviously, obviously late. 
uh, sat down, started to get all his pens out and all that kind of stuff, made a right fuss. And uh, my, my Old Testament lecture is just getting more and more irritated by this guy as he kind of gets himself all set and read all this, completely wrecked the seminar. And uh, the Old Testament lecturer looks to this student and says, um, well, perhaps you can help us with the question. Who do you think Coalette is? And there was a pause, and the student went, who? <laughs> Clearly had done no preparation whatsoever. At which point, the lecturer just ordered him out of the room. That was it. Off you go. Don't come back again. Do not darken my doors again. And then we got into the text. And we looked at that passage. There is a season for everything in its time. A season for activity under the heavens. Time to be born, a time to die, time to plant, time to heal, all of that kind of stuff. And then you come to the key verse in Ecclesiastes. I didn't read it earlier on, but it, it is um, verse 11. God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. Human beings are mortal. We're made of flesh and blood. We live for a finite number of years. In the words of one of the Psalms that I regularly read at funeral services, we flourish like a flower in the field, it grows, it sprouts, and then when the wind passes over it, it is gone, and it is seen no more. We are mortal. Been lots of statistics flying around recently to do the uh, coronavirus. I have some uh, news for you this morning. Human beings are 100% mortal. There is a 100% mortality rate for everybody in this room. There is a time to live, and for each of us, there will be a time to die. The question for each of us in that small span between those two events is where is meaning to be found in life? And there's a clue there in Ecclesiastes. God has made everything beautiful in its time and he has set eternity in the heart of man. There is something of God in each of us. We're made in his image. He set eternity in our hearts. The thing that's in each of us that separates us from the animals, from the material world, is that eternity in our hearts cries out for meaning. Deep calls to deep. And the eternity in our hearts cries out for the eternal heart of God. But where is he to be found? Where is the meaning, the purpose of life that we long for, the thing behind all these different times that gives all of the meaning, where is that to be found? Is it to be found in religion? Is it to be found in relationships? Those two things would probably be the answers of the two characters that Jesus meets at the beginning of John's Gospel. John's Gospel was written after the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, it's a kind of uh, supplemental, if you like. He probably had seen uh, the, those Gospels, read them, and then adds in some other information, tells some different stories. 
And he tells the story of Nicodemus, which I read to you, and he also tells the story of the Samaritan woman. Stories only found in John's Gospel. All writers are selective. They include things and they leave out things. And John includes these things because he wants to show us something of who Jesus was. He wants us to learn who Jesus was. And he wants to show us how Jesus related to two very, very different people. Chapters 3 and 4 really go together, like kind of bookends really. But I'm only going to look at chapter 3 this morning. So who is Nicodemus? Well, he's a member of the ruling religious council of the Jews. He's a man of high status. He's probably a wealthy figure. He's part of the cultural elite. He's certainly well known. He's a man of prestige and position. He's a ruler. He's a Pharisee, which means he's religiously devout. He's devoted to the scriptures faithful in keeping the Jewish law, a scrupulous in his attendance at worship. He's the epitome of moral authority and religious observance. He's committed to a holy and righteous life. He comes to Jesus at night and he comes with questions. In contrast, in chapter 4, you have the Samaritan woman We don't know her name. She lives in Samaria, a foreign land, disputed territory with the Jews. Her worship would be heterodox at best, heretical at worst. She'd be viewed by men like Nicodemus as idolatrous. We're told that she has had five husbands and the man she's living with now is not a husband. She's at the very bottom of the social order. She meets Jesus in the midst of the day in a public place by a well. And Jesus asks her questions. John shows us Jesus encountering both of these people, two very different people, and he records the conversation for us. Not for their sake, but for our sake. At the end of his book, John tells us why he wrote it. He says, Jesus did many of the things that are not recorded here, but these are written that you may believe, that you may believe that Jesus is the promised one, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. Nicodemus stands as a person in his own right. He's a historical figure, flesh and blood, as real as you or I. But he also stands as a certain type of person. He stands for those who are impressed by Jesus, but still have questions. Those who are intrigued by Jesus, but not yet ready to commit. He stands for all of those people who are religious, who are good, who are moral, who are upright, who are drawn to Jesus' teaching, attracted by his character, but confused as to who he really is and what it means to follow him. Perhaps there are a few of those people here today. Perhaps you're one of them. Maybe you know some of them. What does Jesus have to say to Nicodemus? And what does he have to say to us? 
Nicodemus comes at night. Might be that he doesn't want to be seen, perhaps he's coming in secret. Could also be that he wants to have a conversation. During the day, Jesus is bouncing around from one thing to the next. There's always crowds around him. He's teaching, he's ministering, he's busy. At night time, he probably goes to somebody's house, they have a meal, they relax together, they talk. There's an opportunity for a fuller conversation. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he comes with questions. He's respectful. He's perhaps even slightly flattering of Jesus. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who's come from God. For no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. You're a teacher. God is with you. Jesus, I think you're a good guy. Perhaps he's hoping for some kind of reciprocal response, some approval coming back. Uh, Jesus is having none of it. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. In effect, he says, Nicodemus, you don't know anything. You're religious, you're devout, you think you are close to God, but you need to be totally reborn. You need to be completely remade, even to see the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the place where the king rules, as in any kingdom. It's a place where his presence is, where his rule is known, where he's honored, where he is at work. Jesus says you can't have any part of this unless you're born again. Unsurprisingly, Nicodemus asks the obvious question. How can one be born again? He can't enter his mother's womb a second time. And Jesus answers, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of the water and of spirit. Jesus raises the stakes He's been talking about seeing the kingdom of God and now he's talking about entering into the kingdom of God. He's speaking to that eternity in Nicodemus's heart. That deep calling to deep. That longing, that searching that can only be satisfied by the Holy Spirit of God. He's speaking of being spiritually reborn by God's Spirit. Only the eternal creator can fill a heart made for eternity everything else will fall short everyone else will fall short Nicodemus has come to Jesus to talk about Jesus's ministry and Jesus talks to him about Nicodemus's need Nicodemus has come to talk about possibilities and Jesus gives him certainties Nicodemus says, we know, and Jesus says, you do not know. Jesus says to Nicodemus and to everyone who identifies with him, you need to be born again of water and the spirit. Scholars have debated what that's a reference to. I'm not going to go into that debate this morning, simply to say I think uh, the strongest evidence that when Jesus says water and the spirit, he's talking about uh, the water of baptism. 
and the Spirit of God. At the end of this chapter, there's a discussion with, uh, about John the Baptist's baptism and the baptism that, that his disciples are involved in. Uh, the baptism of John the Baptist was a baptism that marked uh, repentance, a turning to God. John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, would take people down to the River Jordan and they'll be washed in the waters there. And it signified a washing away of sin, a recommitment to God, a desire to live a good and holy life. Somebody like Nicodemus would have absolutely approved of the message of John the Baptist. The need to wash away our sin and be right with God. And Jesus said, you don't need to be just washed in baptism. You don't need to be just washed on the outside. A symbolic washing, a washing away of sin. But you need to be washed on the inside. Your heart needs to be cleansed. You need to be made clean inside. You need to be forgiven. You need the Holy Spirit of God to birth his spirit within you, to fill that eternal void within your heart. There's an echo here of Ezekiel, one of the oldest books in the Bible, one of the books that um, uh, uh, Nicodemus would have known well, would have read from uh, many times. Ezekiel uh, chapter 36 describes the kingdom of God, and this is the terms in which it's described. I will gather you, that's God's people, from all the countries. I will bring you back to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from all impurities and from all idols. I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll take away your heart of stone and give you a soft heart of flesh. Nicodemus comes to Jesus as a good, moral, devout man, an upright guy. And Jesus tells him, you need to be reborn. You need to be remade. You need the Holy Spirit of God to come in you and birth a new spirit within you. And you need that if you're to see and to enter into God's kingdom. The shocking thing for Nicodemus and the shocking thing for us is that Jesus doesn't say you need a little bit more religion in your life. He doesn't say you need to be just a little bit better, a little bit more moral, a little bit more devout. He doesn't say you need to try a little bit harder, pray a little bit more, give a little bit more, come a little bit more, read your Bible a little bit more. So many people inside and outside of the church think that this is the message that we have. This is our gospel. That you need morality and you need religion in your life. And we can help you have a little bit more of that too. So our message is, well, you're kind of hitting 60%. Let's go for 75%. I'm not saying that morality doesn't matter. I'm not saying that how we live doesn't matter. I'm not saying that there's an ethical and a right way to order our lives of of course not Jesus said if you love me you will follow my commands but the gospel is that morality and religious observance cannot free us from the things that bind us they cannot give us that meaning that our hearts crave they cannot give us that new life that is only found in Jesus To Nicodemus, this paragon of virtue, this leader in the faith, he says you need to be completely reborn. 
Nothing you've done counts. Nothing of who you are counts. There's no spiritual brownie points that you've earned before God. He says no matter how good you are, how religious you are, how much of an insider you are, how together you are, you must be born again. And the converse is true for the Samaritan woman as well. The message for her is no matter how bad you are, how irreligious you are, how far you have fallen, how much of an outsider you feel yourself to be, how chaotic your life is, you can be born again as well. So how does it happen? How can Nicodemus and people like him, people like us, be born again? Verses 14 to 18, Jesus tells Nicodemus and John is eavesdropping on the conversation, so it's recorded for us. Jesus says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. John continues, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Let's unwrap Moses and the snake reference. It's a reference that's something that happened way back in the history of Israel, the Jewish people. Uh, you can find the story in Numbers at chapter 21. The people of God have sinned. And uh, their sin leads to death, as sin always does. And God sends a plague of snakes, venomous snakes, and they're out in the desert and they bite them where they are out in the desert and the people begin to die. And in a sense, the venom represents the sin in their lives. It represents in their bodies what sin is doing to their hearts, to their souls. It's it's killing them inside. But God has provided a means of escape, a means of healing, a means of redemption. And he tells Moses just to make a, a, a kind of an image of a snake, a bronze serpent. You to put it on a staff and you to hold this staff up in the midst of the people. And all that anyone has to do to be free of the, the venom that's poisoning them, all that they have to do, however sick they are, is to look upon that snake and they'll be healed. Some are immobilized, some can't walk. They couldn't possibly get over to the snake. They'd have to touch it. They'd have to reach out to it. It doesn't have to be brought over to them. All they have to do is to look. And Jesus says, this is an image. This is a picture of what it means to be born again. This is what it means to look to God and to trust in God and to find new life in him. Best example of this I've seen is uh, the story of Charles Spurgeon. Uh, Charles Spurgeon was a great Baptist preacher in London in the 19th century. And uh, when he was a Christian, he was just new to church, new to faith, trying to figure it out, trying to find um, his way. And one Sunday he wanted to go to church, but there's a really heavy uh, snowstorm. You couldn't, you couldn't get out. And so he couldn't go to his normal church, which is a, a Baptist church. So he went to a little, a little Methodist church that was just around the corner. He wasn't a Methodist, but he went in there, he slipped in. And because of the storm, hardly anybody had been able to get to church that day. There was just three or four people there. 
Uh, the preacher hadn't made it. And so one of the older, uh, more mature Christians, he said, well, I'll, I'll preach a sermon, I suppose, although I'm no preacher. Spurgeon says he couldn't do much more than read the text and encourage the people. In my view, that's a great, that's a great definition of preaching. Read the text and encourage the people. The text was Isaiah 45, verse 22. Look to me and be saved. And the man began to explain the text to that little group of people who are gathered there. He says, you, don't, you know, you don't even have to lift a finger to look. Spurgeon remembers him saying, you don't have to be worth a million pounds. You don't have to be worth a thousand pounds. You don't have to have anything good about you or anything bad about you. You just have to look. And they said, don't look to yourselves. There's no hope there. Finally, the preacher lifted up his voice and he put the words of Isaiah 42, 22 in Jesus' mouth. He said, look at me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look at me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look at me, I've died. Look at me, I'm buried. Look at me, I'm risen. Look at me, I'm ascended. Look at me, I'm at the right hand of the Father. Look at me. And then the preacher looked out. And remember, there are only three or four people sat there. He looked out and he saw Spurgeon, who'd never been in that building before, the only young man there in their midst. And he said, and I would love to say this. He said, young man... You look miserable. <laughs> Young man, you're going to be miserable. Miserable in life, miserable in death, if you don't obey this teaching. And at that moment, this is what Spurgeon said. He suddenly realized, I'd gone to church waiting for somebody to tell me 50 things I needed to do to get right with God. 50 things I needed to do to get right with God. He thought he was going to go on some great quest like the heroes of the stories we read to our children. He thought he needed to adopt a whole new set of religious practices and observances. I was ready to be told, you have to do these 50 things. And he suddenly realized, I just have to look. And he realized he'd been looking inward and he just needed to look upward. He says, oh, I looked and I looked and I could have almost looked my eyes away. This is what you have to do. Those of us who identify with Nicodemus, look to Jesus and trust in him. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. A more accurate translation of uh, believes would not be believes in him, but would be believes into him. It's good Greek, but it's clumsy uh, English. But you get the sense. Believe into Jesus. Lots of people believe in Jesus in the sense of believing that he existed. Or that he might have some interesting things to say to our world. That's a world away from believing into Jesus. Actually putting our faith in him. 
that we might receive spiritual new life, a new birth. Trust is a word that expresses this well. All of us, I hope, know what it means to trust a person. You get to know them. As you get to know them uh, more, you see more of their life, more of their character. You realize they are trustworthy. You can trust in them. You can rely upon them. Much as we might receive a guest in our homes, Jesus speaks of receiving him. This is what to believe into Jesus means. To make a personal commitment to him not simple intellectual assent but personal trust that's the requisite for being born again a changed life a new way of living spiritual disciplines they all throw from this new birth but they can't they can't create it they can't make it that results simply from coming to Jesus and trusting into him Jesus speaks again and again of people coming to him. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and to those who come to me, I will never cast them out. If anyone is thirsty, let them come to me and drink. In a similar way, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. These passages give an intensely personal picture of what's involved in a faith that leads to and flows from a spiritual new birth. The author of the letter to the Hebrews reminds us that Jesus is alive in the heavens and ready to receive all who will come to him. He's able for all time to save those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The text is simple. The encouragement is easy. Come to him. Trust in him. Believe into him. Look not inward to yourselves, but look to him, who was high and lifted up, upon a cross for our healing for our uh, redemption for our freedom for our life that's why we have communion this morning that's why we have communion each week as a as a reminder of all that jesus has done that his body was broken that his blood was shed that we might trust in him that we might literally feed on him and be nourished by him Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, the Son who is high and lifted up upon a cross, uh, the Son who draws all people to himself. And Lord, we pray that you would draw us afresh to yourself this morning, that we might find the life that's only found in you, that we would look upon you, gaze upon you, and be reborn by you. Forgive us our sins, we pray. Wash our hearts and make us clean. Take away our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. 
In Jesus' name, amen.